Hinduism is in danger. This, uh, in fact, uh, that is the most uh, common refrain that you would hear on social media from most of the what is called nationalist Hindus. However, when Abhijit uh, Ayer Mitra says this, then everybody gets worried. So I have got Abhijit Mitra here, and we will talk about his prognostications and check his astrological abilities. Okay, so here we go. Please subscribe and also the support link is very much there in the description. I urge you to please look at that as well. Here we go. So welcome viewers and welcome Abhijit. So uh, what hat are you wearing today? Veil, veil, vetri veil. Unfortunately, you know, I'm traveling, so no hats that I'm wearing. But I'd like to uh, uh, specify that for the purposes of this discussion, I uh, self-identify as female. So I must be referred to in uh, Streeling. And anybody who does not, I will file a police complaint against. Oh, the National sorry. Commission for Women. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you are fully woke today. Okay, that is understood. Yeah. Uh, and so... So A I M becomes what? I mean A I M. Self self identification. That doesn't matter. Yes. So uh, A I M. Uh, as usual, you put the cats among the pigeons, and you talked mm -hmm. about end of Hinduism, and you gave it the end of the century. That's about eighty years. However, uh, let me put. The, uh, let me do what is called a Purva Paksha and uh, let me summarize uh, your talk that you did on the Charvaka for the benefit of uh, the viewers who may not have heard and for my better understanding as well. This is classical Purva Paksha. You understand Purva Paksha? Yes. Okay. So the what I understand from your talk is that... Uh, uh, you have said that Hinduism is danger mainly because uh, it is uh, going to uh, face the brunt of the conversion drive of the other religions in this current century. You say that it is accelerated after 2014. And uh, the markers that you take are from uh, the era of Constantine and the later Turkic invasions. Am I right to that extent? Okay. Uh, now, it has what? accelerated since 1947, not since yes, 2014. Yes, yes. 1947. 1947. And you said that BJP has further accelerated it. So that's 2004. Yes. Right? Yes. Okay. So far, so good. Next, uh, uh, when you analyze uh, it uh, in the context of the Christian era, then you uh, give us three frameworks. You, you give us the what is called the religio-theological framework and you give an economic framework and you also give a framework of a Christian adaptation to the powers that be. Have I understood that correctly? Okay. Correct. Okay. So those are the three frameworks you prescribe. You also mm -hmm. briefly touch upon the uh, monotheism and uh, polytheism bit. And of course, there's a factual inaccuracy. You said that uh, Akhtanaman uh, in Egypt is the first monotheist. That is not the case. Uh, Zoroastrianism is the first monotheistic religion. And that is late Rigvedic era. It starts from the late Rigvedic era. So that's uh, it's my uh, little bit of uh, correction. You may admit it. You may contest. No, I would disagree with that. I would, uh, I would disagree with that. For me, Zoroaster... Um, is definitely around uh, 800 to uh, 1000 BC maximum, no uh, older than that. No. Uh, anyway, uh, then we are talking of different frameworks because then you are in the AIT framework and I'm in the anti-AIT framework. No, no, this, this is not AIT framework at all. It's based on primarily on uh, what archaeological evidence we have of Zoroastrianism uh, prior to that. Uh, right, we anyway, just don't okay. have anything 
Yes, yes. Yeah. We, we have a lot. In fact, if you read the uh, later Rig Veda and compare it with the uh, Zenda Vesta, then we'll find a, a lot of literary commonalities which have now been established. There are, there are literary like, commonalities, but it's still yes, yes, not. Uh, it is being sta established by people like uh, um, Talagiri. Anyway, uh, then we, we can fine, say. Anyway, there may let, have been a set let, of, let, us, let us agree to disagree uh, on that. Uh, Let us agree to disagree on that, Abhijit. You stay with your yeah. Egypt and I stay with my Zoroaster. Anyway, that's not the uh, nub of the argument anyway. So that yeah. won't affect that uh, discussion very much. Uh, uh, okay. Now, <clears throat> let us come to your uh, argument that uh, the conversion was facilitated by the three frameworks that you suggested. And I don't have too much to uh, disagree on that, actually. Uh, my issue only is that uh, the frameworks that you're applying to the Christian conversion era, how do you transpose them into India of post-1947? Hmm. So very important. First, a uh, fragmented Hinduism, uh, which uh, seemed for a while to coalesce and converge under Hindutva, the problem then becomes the monopoly of violence, all right, of how a opposing community can enact violence against you uh, and uh, uh, get away with it which we've seen happen over and over and over again, because one of the things this government seems too scared to do is to crack down on violence as and when it happens. We've seen this repeatedly. You saw this with Selampur riots, which turned into Shaheen Bagh, which turned into the Delhi riots. You saw that with uh, Taket's farmers, which then turned into the uh, siege of the Red Fort, which then turned into uh, uh, an ongoing blockade of the Ghaziabad uh, highway. Uh, nothing was done about it. So you see these repeat patterns, uh, uh, West Bengal, again, nothing done about it. So all these repeat patterns go back to that particular pattern. The next pattern was the economic pattern, which was, you know, the uh, the uh, Eastern Roman Empire was the first to become majority at the Eastern part. It hadn't become the Eastern Roman Empire by that time, but the Eastern part of the Roman Empire, Greece, Egypt, uh, uh, the Levant were the first to convert because they had the highest uh, levels of uh, slavery and uh, economic destitution, much higher than the Western half of the Roman Empire, including Western Africa. Uh, so, you know, uh, there was that. Uh, what you see now isn't an increase in destitution, but more an increase in the knowledge of said destitution, uh, which happens when you tend to get more connected. And in the case of Rome, you know, it was the uh, uh, notion of a mare nostrum uh, uh, principle where everybody knew everything and you were free to travel within the empire unless you were a slave of course but you could be sold anywhere within the empire uh, and uh, the fourth uh, sorry the third is the refusal to come together and see a common ground if and when you see a common ground you think it's a common ground when in fact it is not a common ground uh, fourth is the fact that you never macro things because you don't, uh, you're perpetually stuck in micro battles. You are incapable of looking at the macro picture uh, because for you, religion is fundamentally extremely rational. Uh, whereas in an Abrahamic framework, it is the suspension of rationality. Uh, and then, of course, there was the economic need to convert. Uh, for all the military campaigns and a slowly uh, fraying borders and things like that, where the requirement was much greater. That doesn't apply to us so much. Uh, and then once Constantine comes to power, the seizure of all the economic agency, the economic and political agency that they have, which today you see that we're incapable of a coordinated societal response because all our temples are in the hands of government. All the temple wealth is in the hands of the government. It's treated as a cash cow. And it's abused like a cash cow because, you know, cows are constantly abused. They're made to mate over and over again. Their children aren't allowed to drink their milk. 
you know the dairy industry which in india we think is uh, uh, a beautiful industry is the biggest contributor to leather and uh, wheel uh, because the uh, male calves are sold off for their soft skin and for their meat uh, uh, things like that so uh, you know it's it's un unpleasant realities that people don't want to hear uh, but that was pretty much a summation uh, okay now let's come to the um, what i find problematic about this uh, whole uh, prognostication mm -hmm. is that uh, uh, you're comparing uh, uh, i wouldn't call uh, you can put it anywhere I mean, but it, it is a quasi industrial society right now in india it is not industrialized fully as the west is you can put it somewhere there uh, and uh, we are now in the information age now the right comparison should have been if you are comparing the <clears throat> uh, second century or the third century after christ or the common era then the right comparison should be the sanatana response to buddhism and if you look at the spread of buddhism and if you look at the time of ashoka ashoka as we now know from archaeological and epigraphical epigraphical evidence was actually a buddhist when he invaded kalinga <clears throat> so it was buddhist violence wreaked against a sanatan empire and uh, of course you are yourself on record saying that ashoka was the first example of turning socialist or uh, turning authoritarian and uh, that wrecked the empire am i right yes am i quoting you right uh, okay yes so uh, yeah so uh, uh, the uh, ashokan authoritarianism and the ashokan suppression of this sanatan dharma in those times of course you could say that uh, the state could not uh, become as totalitarian in those times for want of uh, uh, the tools and equipments that the states have today but uh, for its times and uh, the valid framework for comparison would be i think uh, if you take ashoka to be 4th century bce then uh, the second or third century uh, or the fourth century common uh, era would be a fair comparison so in those times in spite of such oppression and repression the sanatan dharma would bounce back we wouldn't know the extent of elimination of sanatan dharma but whatever we have uh, from the archaeological and epigraphical and from all the edicts and everything we know that it was substantial and from that point the sanatan dharma stages have come back to the extent that buddhism became extinct why would not be a valid comparison with sanatan dharma and then from there that we go to a deductive path and try and find out why it happened why would you not take that approach instead of comparing a second century fourth century common era phenomenon with a 20th 21st century phenomenon that's my question for starters because because buddhism is not christianity okay uh, buddhism is not uh, judaism buddhism is not islam so it falls flat there just like this calling of zoroaster a monotheist zoroaster uh, zoroastrianism is not monotheism it's henotheism there is one primary god and there's lots of subordinate gods under them you see this in achaemenid and uh, uh, sassanid uh, the parthians were considered dirty not really pure zoroastrian in that sense but both in the achaemenid and the sassanid period you see this constant theme where ahura mazda is the chief well, amongst well, well, gods yeah, yeah. You, 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 so, you can ask so, these zoroastrians so, themselves <laughs> they say they are monotheists well i have uh then they they may but then nothing explains how they worship anahita and people like that right uh, uh or the fact that you you've actually uh, oh, for that matter even christians and the christian trinity the trinitarians they call themselves monotheists but 
basically they are trying yeah it. but uh, that's slightly different that, that's a different uh, this thing that's still not henotheism because they use saints for intercession where they call a saint to intercede as opposed to worshiping the saint they worship christ through the saint so the intercession is different and it's three uh, in one kind of you know the father the son and the holy ghost kind of uh, this thing but anyway so buddhism is not the best comparison to do because we're not facing a buddhist threat today number one can, can I, number can two I there was uh, one second let me finish, finish. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, because uh, uh, remember kalinga at that point of time wasn't hindu it was jain Karavela, who comes and sacks uh, 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 Patliputra 20, uh, 20 years after uh, Ashoka's death, uh, also calls the Jain Mahasangha to order, and he himself was a Jain at that point of time. Now, what was different out there was that they did not, while they did use the state coffers to prop up religion, they didn't go around in the systematic way, systematic persecution. For Buddhism, the systematic elimination of other religions has never really been important it is not seen as a heresy for uh, christians for judaism for islam it is now have there been instances of extreme atrocities by buddhists against hindus yes have there been instances of extreme atrocities by hindus against jains yes because nobody wants to talk about the fact that one of the greatest tamar shaivite saints tirugyana sambandhar there is still a mural in uh, 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 madurai meenakshi temple which shows you how he had 8000 jain saints impaled alive on uh, spikes he was like vlad the impaler who took spikes uh, inserted it up the jain saints anus and they were left hanging like sardines on a toothpick uh, uh, there so we're not talking about sporadic violence as opposed to systemic systematic uh enshrined persecution and i brought in the very important example there of honorius and why did honorius succeed where diocletian failed was because honorius brought in the concept of punishing governors for failing to enact his decrees that was actually a very important bureaucratic innovation that he did which is why you know in controlling the ias i keep calling for failure standards and accountability uh he brought in those failure standards and accountability and incidentally i got that idea from honorius uh from well no, no, from given uh, if you're taking the honorius example then again i would say that if you're uh well i i have issues with your uh, uh, uh this uh, jainism persecution of jainism being very Uh, different you took the caravela example uh, in any case till the beginning of the till till 1947 jains were never considered apart from hindus anyway intersectarian 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 one minute one please let me finish in <clears throat> intersectarian sectarian rather intersectarian warfare has always been there and uh, uh, when i mention about ashoka systematic persecution in fact i would say that buddhism's uh, uh, impact on hinduism would be much more pernicious also because it had the capacity having because buddha was uh, from same stock he was a sanatani as well uh, he never preached a, a separate mahasangh it was his followers who did that and uh, coming from the same stock coming from the same system only uh, preaching a different way it would uh, cause the absorption to be significantly simpler you you didn't have to create a binary situation as in case of christians so uh, i find your argument problematic that because they had the heresy kind of a concept so they had uh, all the facility to actually completely run over the other systems one number 10 number 2 as i said that right in the beginning as the true framework that you put that you say uh, 4th century and you project it on to post 1947 and then you give the example of honorius now i would like to know who is the honorius here is jawarlal nehru of course i don't like jawarlal nehru for his strategic blunders that let me uh, make that uh, 
disclosure right in the beginning. But even then, I wouldn't put Jawaharlal Nehru in the place of Honorius or Indira Gandhi, of that matter, even Sonia Gandhi, whose uh, anti-Hindu bias is known to everyone. And she is probably done the maximum damage by some kind of institutional capture that very deviously was proposed to her. My suspicion is by the church itself. And uh, for all his foibles and faults and for not supporting the Hindu agenda, especially the equal rights for Hindus, you couldn't put uh, Narendra Modi in the, in the seat of honorius either. There may be number of faults of omissions. There aren't any faults of commission yet. Agreed. Uh, agreed? Then who do you yeah. think that because you gave 80 years for Hinduism to finish, who is going to be the Theodosius and Honorius in the next 80 years? Look, so the Theodosius and Honorius are yet to come. That was the oh, point. See, but when you know Constantine that they're takes over, of course, it's only a matter of time. You already have your Honorius in. Between Constantine you already have your Honorius years. One second, let me finish now. Uh, honorius, you already have one regional Honorius in YS Jagan. Okay, uh, this is a bit like Korea. Once uh, uh, they know exactly what the man's father did, they know what the man's father tried to do to Tirupati, and they voted for him again. Okay, now look at South Korea. Once you've had a Christian president, have you had, even though Christ, uh, South Korea identifies as uh, 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 say 50-odd percent non-believer, you can't have a non-Christian become president there ever again. Right? Even though officially only 26% are conforming Christians. Okay. Now, in India, you are not looking at your, at most looking at the phase of Julian the Apostate, the one emperor in between who apostatized from Christianity. But after Constantine converts, no emperor ever becomes pagan again, except for Julian. And even Julian doesn't start persecuting the Christian. Uh, he starts up the Neoplatonic school again, but that's about it. Right. We've not reached our Constantine point yet. We will get there. We will get there. That's, it's that's, not that's a big... Uh, uh, I'm Rahul Gandhi. Uh, but thanks again for Rahul Gandhi. One second. I haven't finished yet. I haven't finished yet. So we haven't reached our Constantine point yet. But once you reach your Constantine, that's the end. There is no recovery from that point on. There has never been a recovery from that point on for any civilization on earth. Not for the Vikings, not for the Russians, not for the Belarusians, not for the Wends and the Poles and the East Prussians, uh, 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 not for the French, not for the Italians, not for the Greeks, not for the Turks, uh, not for the South Koreans, uh, not uh, for the Philippines. Uh, it, it's never been. Full stop. So, the, see, this comparison to Buddhism is fallacious. Secondly, I would completely disagree with this thing that, you know, you want to call it intersect rivalry. There was enough Shaivite versus Vaishnavite intersect rivalry. Uh, th there is uh, no evidence whatsoever that I've seen that convincingly demonstrates that Buddhist, uh, Pushyamitra Shunga, for example, when he kills the last uh, uh, emperor, the Buddhist texts, you may think of them as part of your dharmic circle. This is where I stress salience and substance. You may think they're your brothers and sisters. Do they think you are their brother and sister? No. Because the Buddhist texts are very clear about Pushyashmatrishunga. That you don't think uh, 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 Ashoka was a particularly uh, bad uh, ruler for Hindus. That's a different matter. Similarly, with the Jains, there was a very clear distinction at that point of time. It eroded once Muslim rule came because then there was a common enemy. But at that point of time, it was very clear. You can't go around impaling 8,000 people on a stake and then claiming that there was no clear division. That's a bit like saying Aurangzeb. That's an Audrey Trusky argument to make because that's like saying demolition of 40,000 temples is 
it isn't really a sect. Actually, Aurangzeb was uh, propagating Ganga Jamuni Tehzeeb. Are, uh, are you finished? Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I have to ch uh, check up this uh, Jan impilation. Because the first time I'm hearing this. Uh, anyway, uh, let's come to your uh, um, argument. In fact, uh, when you say that uh, you may consider Buddhism to, Buddhists to be your Bible, but they don't consider uh, themselves to be yours, actually, you are defeating your own argument. Because in the earlier instance, you said that, uh, well, Buddhism is not Christianity. But now you're saying just the, the other thing. You are actually equating Buddhism. No, there is no contradiction. It's not a binary. No, no, it's not a binary. Understand <laughs> that the dharmic faiths, they come. So, for example, how for Judaism, uh, anyway, Christianity, anyway, anyway. and Islam. You are interrupting one second, me. I I have no, no, no. One second, one second. For I have Judaism, Christianity. One second, one second. For Islam, Judaism and Christianity are Ahle Kitab. They are all people of the book. For Buddhism, we are still dharmic. That doesn't mean Muslims don't kill uh, Christians and vice versa. So there is a connecting strand between Jainism, Buddhism and Hinduism. But that, that but calling that intersect rivalry is like saying Muslims and Christians and Jews killing each other is intersect rivalry. Okay, Which you can so, make a case. Technically, one believes in the Old Testament, one believes in Old Testament so plus New I, Testament, I, 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 and one believes in Old Testament plus New Testament plus Newer Testament. I would appreciate Avjit if you give me the same courtesy which I am giving you by not interrupting me. And uh, uh, I would say that by uh, stating this, this argument, actually, you were only supporting my argument. I'll give you uh, time to come back later. Because uh, you're saying the same thing again in a different way. That, okay, the, the Buddhisms have, Buddhists have animus against you. Whether it is animus, yes, you say that they consider you dharmic. They, the other people consider you Ahle Kitab and yet kill each other. Buddhists consider you Dharmic, yet they kill each other. So, I mean, where are you getting to? I don't know. Let me come to the YS Jagan argument, the salience and substance mm -hmm. argument that you are putting forward. <clears throat> okay. Uh, YS Jagan argument uh, is fine. I demonstrated to you why I said Buddhist was because. Uh, Buddhism gained currency, we don't know to what extent, it was the uh, royal faith, let's not call them, let's not call the dharmikas as religions, it was the royal faith and it was substantial and of course uh, if you go by the uh, various uh, what is called fictional accounts and non-fictional accounts and what have you, I would think that uh, the animus between the two was quite substantial and the Buddhism had the sweep of the place. Percentages we do not know. And yet Sanatana staged a comeback. That's something that doesn't happen between the Christians and the pagans. And of course I have a reasoning for that. I'll put that forward. <clears throat> uh, because you also uh, analyze the philosophical frameworks of the two and uh, you consider the what is called the systems that the Greeks followed or the Romans followed and that was pagan all right but it wasn't rooted in the kind of philosophy that uh, the Sanatana had and um, my submission in this case is that Sanatana was able to make a considerable pushback on Buddhism because it had a framework, it had an experiential framework that was quite similar to Buddhism but also substantially different on certain questions like Atma and Anatma. And because it had, Buddhism also de developed its own corpus of literature. And because it had some kind of literature to fall back upon, which wasn't available 
in my opinion, to the other pagan civilizations. And when they did produce that literature in the time of Plato and Aristotle and uh, others, we had that uh, uh, Platonic, Neoplatonic uh, systems, their logic system was uh, pretty much binary. If you look at the Aristotle's logic, the logic system that Aristotle follows, that's pretty much what the Christians adopted later on. And in fact, the early Christians also had uh, the trans uh, transposition of souls, not uh, the transposition of the transformation of souls. And not just that, the early Christians, in fact, not just early Christian, right till uh, 553 common era, uh, the Christians also had what is called the cyclical time. It was in the Constantinople Ecumenical Council, I think it was fifth, if, uh, fifth or sixth, I don't remember which one, but 553 common era. Uh, that was the time that uh, finally a curse on cyclical time was pronounced. So the pathways of Sanatana and the pathways of Greeks and Christianities are completely different. And that is the reason why Christianity and uh, especially if you look at Islam, because we haven't talked about Islam at all. If you look at Islam, Islam never gained a victory of narrative over Sanatana Dharma, never. The Christians have tried that, and Christians have been fairly successful, except in the place that you are sitting. And uh, they tried that. They brought in the atrocity literature. They brought in the uh, caste binaries. They tried to uh, debunk a, a lot of uh, other systems. But in spite of all that, you consider if you consider 1947 to be the breaking point and if you take that 1947 as the inflection point till 1947 the success is very 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 limited after all if you look at the islamic islams of course i do not consider them to be very brainy because they're all brawn very little uh, to do with brains very little to do with conducting narratives because that's my way or the highway kind of a system. Christians have been much more subtle. And even then, in spite of all that, though, of course, you assign it a reason that the, the Turks did not bring their families or the Indians did not have a horse. Well, uh, I do not find that uh, connection uh, very enlightening, though. In 1881, the census. And of course, I know from my own experience with census that Muslims typically inflate their numbers. They obtained majorities in Bengal and Punjab by inflating their numbers. And they were 18% in the first census that uh, uh, happened in 1881. And uh, once they realized that, then they started inflating their number and they managed to reach 24% by 1941. So, and uh, Christians, of course, uh, uh, 1951, they were, I think, 2.6% uh, or something. And today, officially, they are 2.3%. Of course, there are a lot of what we would say that uh, uh, hearsay narratives, which put the numbers much larger. Though, of course, I examined the Andhra Pradesh numbers and we came to the conclusion that the 25% that it touted upon <clears throat> ultimately comes to uh, something like 6-7%. Anyway, we have this weakness among Hindus also that uh, they not only take the inflated numbers from the other side, they then put their own inflation on it. That I'm speaking from empirical experience having conducted census myself. So, dare you to take my word for it. Uh, huh. So, I come to that. That's uh, okay. That those, all the frameworks that you're using uh, from the uh, 4th century, they're not valid in the 20th century frameworks. You have to compare it with 20th century frameworks. If you use this, if you use the, use the uh, 
Hoti Tutsu framework, maybe. I would agree. If you maybe use the Sri Lankan framework, mm. where the church uh, created that strife and created that uh, <clears throat> uh, that insurgency, then maybe I would agree. Even if you took some 19th century example, I would agree. But uh, projecting the 4th century frameworks that do not fit into a Sanatan framework, I find, I'm finding it very, very problematic. And maybe you say that uh, another thing, one, one more thing, please, please. The last thing that I, I can't keep count of how many things you've said so far, so I won't be able to no, no, counter no. it. Uh, basically, said, basically said two or three things. If you want, I'll sum it up. And uh, you're saying that uh, there will be a Constantine and there will be a uh, Theodosius and there will be an honor Honorius. That takes it into, into the realm of uh, astrology and not rational argument. No. Yeah. Look, why is Jagan is the first uh, pallbearer of it? So it's a, it's a systematic pattern that you're going to start seeing. Uh, your Northeast is already gone. Uh, uh, Andhra will be the first, ha has already become the first major state to fall. And you have experience conducting census. I have experience living in the conversion belt, uh, which is the coastal Andhra down to coastal Tamil Nadu. I've seen my own colony, which used to be a Tambram colony in Mylapur, turn overwhelmingly Christian to the point that, uh, you know, they, I hardly find any Tambrams here anymore. Uh, you go down south, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse across the coast. Right. So while I respect your census experience, you then have to respect my lived experience of living at the prime heart of the conversion belt. Number one. Number two, uh, the council that banned the cyclic time was under Theodora because Theodora, Empress Theodora, uh, the wife of Justinian, was a whore. Uh, and uh, she had a huge issue with, uh, uh, you know, cyclic time because, uh, uh, well, it wasn't it wasn't exactly karmic. It was something uh, similar, but not the same kind of uh, this thing. Number three, I'll tell you why the fourth century AD is still valid for us, because India is not an industrial. We're still a pre-industrial society. Okay, we may we claim to have moved on to the information age, but a true information age is based on an industrial age. Remember, at one point of time, all the so-called information age economies which account for what today they're only 20, 24, 25% manufacturing, 70% uh, services and say 2 to 3% agriculture, uh, where at one point of time, 70, 80% manufacturing, which China is transitioning through. We never achieved that level of manufacturing. We've always been like what, uh, 18, 19, 20, high 20% manufacturing. We've transitioned into services that still doesn't make you a industrial uh, uh, society. Next, with labor, all your labor, st labor statistics, what, less than 10% of your labor is organized labor. The remaining 90% is disorganized labor. You're right. So again, uh, that is exactly why the 4th century is more relevant to us. It's pre-industrial society with a pre-industrial society. Uh, now, I personally define industrialization as the application of chemical energy to the production process. Most others claim it is bulk concentration urbanization. They tend to confuse urbanization with this. You look at Roman urbanization percentages. It was very similar to India in the early uh, 40s. Uh, in fact, Rome was probably slightly more urbanized than India was uh, uh, in the 40s and 50s. Right. So I would uh, disagree with that very considerably. I think it's a perfect framework to be applied. Does the Sanatana Dharma Buddhism framework also apply? Yes. Except, remember, you had huge intellectual giants pushing back. You had people like Shankaracharya and co pushing back against it. You had the Bhakti movement that came up and pushed back against it. Today, in an information age, you don't have those kinds of movements pushing out. You know, there's letters between who is that Sant and um, Mira talking about things Ab Abhinav was telling me, I forget now. There was coordination. 
Today, there's no coordination, right? We don't even have the theological framework in which to do that coordination and back them off. So very, very different things. In uh, uh, Buddhism, uh, state power was always sparingly used. So even now, if you go to Thailand, you can you have Ganesha temples and things like that. Buddhists, I know a lot of Buddhists, for example, uh, in Thailand and Cambodia and Vietnam who will not eat beef, even though most Thais, Vietnamese and Cambodians consume copious quantities of beef. You still have Ganesha temples and things like that out there. It still remains syncretic. Right. On the other hand, you tell me what is left. I mean, even in Sri Lanka, you want to take the Sri Lankan example, you still have a significant minority in the community that remains Hindu. But of that Tamil, that ethno-linguistic minority that was Hindu, almost 40-50% have now been converted to Christianity, not to Buddhism, to Christianity. So in fact, since you raised the Sri Lanka example, look what happened to the relict Hindus of Sri Lanka. They weren't absorbed by Buddhism. They were absorbed by Christianity or they were in the process of absorption by Christianity. So the framework is correct. Uh, the uh, uh, cyclic time, I think, is it's not really relevant to this argument. But I want to stress Christianity never, ever won the argument against Roman paganism. Let's be very clear about that. They won through force of arms. They did not win the argument. And this is something Gibbon makes very, very clear in his Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, where he says you had these huge intellectuals, the five good emperors, Trajan, Hadrian, uh, Antonius Pius, uh, 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 and especially Marcus Aurelius, who never found, in his own words, even an iota of intellectual stimulation in Christianity. Far from it, Christianity was deemed unintellectual. It was deemed the philosophy of morons. It was deemed the philosophy of lower life forms who didn't have the capacity to think in the sophisticated way of the Roman state. And it was precisely that, uh, uh, and that is, uh, I'm not making this analogy. Christians make this analogy of, you know, the shepherd and the sheep. It turned people into sheep. They follow brainlessly, which is why you needed more Christians to fight the Germans, to fight the Persians, and to fight down south the Berbers and the uh, 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 Nubians, uh, Numidians. Nubians and Numidians, I forget now. So it, it, they never won an intellectual victory against paganism ever. Ever. You have late Byzantine philosophers who in secret, because the penalty was death, who converted back to uh, uh, paganism in uh, uh, secret because they, uh, they were so appalled by the lack of intellectualism in Christian theology. Islam, again, it never defeated an argument theologically. It won through the force of arms. Christianity, again, did not defeat the argument. They never defeat arguments. If you look at it, it is, uh, you know, uh, my aunt, she always used to uh, make fun. She, she would literally quote from the Bible and uh, the Quran and she'd be like, here, we're talking about Bhagavad Gita, this, this, this. She'd quote a shloka and she'll say, really, you want to compare this with this? And that is the intellectual comparison. Why do Vedic studies and things become popular in Europe after, uh, you know, the uh, uh, age of enlightenment and things like that? It's because people develop a more sophisticated framework. I said that in that podcast that, you know, for a Bronze Age religion, Hinduism was unique in having the kind of intellectual sophistication that would not come about till the second axial age. And it had the intellectual sophistication even to defeat not just the first axial age, but also the second axial age thinkers, even though it was formed in the Bronze Age. Whereas you look at religions, Bronze Age religions, most other Bronze Age, no other Bronze Age religion has had that kind of sophistication. So there's different things at play out here. Today, where is the intellectual sophistication you're seeing? And if you see that intellectual sophistication in someone, where is it coordinated with state action? The state is almost 90% of the conversion uh, uh, nexus. So I see 
I, I am not a Hindu, albeit a Jarvak atheist, uh, because of any great uh, this thing. Uh, I would have been happy to convert if I found an iota of intellect in these Abrahamic religions. But I read them and I go, like, seriously, dude? Seriously? I mean, what the hell? I could think better than this when I was in the second grade or the first grade. They are, unin they are intellectually uninteresting religions. They are great for people who want clarity, who want binaries, who don't want nuance. And that's what they bring. Which, you know, good for them. It's, it's crude okay. for a crude audience. Oh, and oh, India oh. except that crude these Anyway, if I remember right, then uh, you also included the lack of a theological sophistication of the paganism as one of the reasons for Christianity's triumph. Yes. Am I right? So yes. that seems to negate what you are saying right now. Uh, anyway, no. let me put forward another another uh, 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 argument. Sorry, can I just quickly repeat button? Just quickly. Okay. Quickly, 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 before you make your next argument. Remember, I said they had extremely sophisticated philosophy, but they never combined it with their religion. Because they used to go into a dark underworld, they didn't have a concept of karma. You had a split between theology and philosophy. Uh, they never developed theology. They developed philosophy and they developed uh, uh, mythology. In India, we never split it. The Christians combined philosophy and uh, 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 mythology to form theology. In India, it never split in the first place. So you don't have a philosophical split. So we developed theology. So there is no contradiction out there at all. I don't know where you're seeing the contradiction. Oh, okay, let me take this argument from you, uh, if that is the argument, and you again transpose that framework uh, onto Sanatan Dharma, then again there's a contradiction, because uh, you use that uh, defeat of paganism and transpose it onto Sanatan. And now you're saying that Sanatan never had that split and they continued with that. So obviously uh, there is a contradiction in the sense that you first use that uh, in this sense of uh, pagan defeat, but you do not use it when it comes to Sanatana Dharma. So I think one of the two that you have to consider. Can I move forward? Okay. Mm, now, can, I, can I just come back to that? <laughs> you're not letting me continue. <laughs> no, because we're doing Purva Paksha. You've raised one point. I want to settle this point before we move on to the next point. <laughs> well, you are the guest, so I have to give you the privacy. Okay, so no, I did not say that. What I'm saying is you had a theological sophistication that allowed you to counter, right? The Bhakti movement, Adi Shankaracharya and all those people. Today, you don't have that because your entire religious training structure has fallen asunder. Your priests are no longer paid. It doesn't matter if they're Brahmin or whatever. They are not paid. They are not given the theological uh, uh, rigidity and the numbers required to push back. Okay, so it doesn't exist anymore. What, what is the last great theological uh, uh, movement you've seen? I see a lot of spiritual mumbo-jumbo on TV, on Astha TV and things like that. But where is the theology? Right. Everybody getting together, uh, 50 uh, uh, aunties uh, uh, at 108 years old, getting together and singing bhajans is not theology. Okay. Having goons go around breaking up Valentine's Day parade is not theology. Where is the theological depth in Hindu? Your, your control, your government temples of con uh, government control of temples. The first time power has been systematically removed from Hindus has destroyed your theological base. That is the point I'm making. You're going on separating the argument into individual things, whereas I'm saying it has to be taken in jointly. State power, economic power, plus the theological power. Uh, let me come to, on, on this only, uh, let me move to the uh, next one.
I come to the uh, first I talk about your prognostication. Because on the one hand, yeah, you rightly said that there we had the Shankaracharyas and you had the Bhakti movement and we had several other movements. But between Shankaracharya and the Bhakti movement, there was a very big gap. And even during the Bhakti movement, there were gaps. Before that also, if you look at uh, the last great movement, that would have happened uh, something like uh, 8th or 9th century. And then 14th, 15th century, there were a gap of almost 300, 400 years. And even then, they were able to resuscitate the Sanatana society. So on the one hand, when you're putting forward the Christian argument, you say that, uh, that we are going to have, okay, you said you, we are going to have the next Constantine and we'll have the Theodosius and we will have the Honor, uh, Honorius. But you simply do not consider the possibility of having a Shankaracharya or a having, uh, say, somebody called uh, 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 Acharya Vidyaranya or some uh, great Bhakti saints, you do not consider that possibility at all. You seem to discount it completely, saying that it is irreversible, it is simply not possible for Sanatana to generate another Shankaracharya, another Bhakti movement, another Vidyaranya. Have I got that correct? Yes. Now, uh, do you want me to come now? Is it my turn to come now? No, no. Let me ask the question. I first, okay. <laughs> I'm just ascertaining from you and then putting the question. Now, that seems to be a logical fallacy in the sense that you're giving a complete possibility, a complete free run to a faith that still happens to be a significant minority. Even if you take all their claims and everything, even then they do not cross 5%. So you giving them all the benefit of doubt and you put them, you give them the next Constantine, you give them the uh, next Theodosius and you give them the next Honorius. But to the Hindus, to the Sanatan Dharmis, you don't grant them any possibility of having another Shankaracharya or another Bhakti movement or another Vidyarani whom I consider one of the greatest states also. Of course, he was Shankaracharya of Kanchi too, uh, but uh, we are talking of Adi Shankaracharya and uh, Acharya Vidyaranya. Yeah. Can I respond? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I'll tell you why. Uh, we're talking now about the modern period where you have had, and this is why I say post-1947. Remember, pre-1947, Hindus had not been deprived of the economic resources to come up with Acharyas like that, great theological uh, theologians like that who could present a challenge. Today, your theological institutions are impoverished. You don't even have a theological institution today. Right, number one. Number two, therefore, you take in the equation where economic power has been removed from one. So the projection has to be started from 47 where economic power is removed rather than when economic power was not removed. Economic power removed, Northeast becomes Christian, the coastal belt of uh, uh, the Coromandel belt turns Christian, Christian chief minister, uh, uh, Muslim majority, close to Muslim majority, well, significant increase in Muslim population, irrespective in Bengal. Okay, but of course, Islam is a different thing. Let's just talk about Christianity right now. Andhra uh, and the Northeast after the removal of economic power. Okay, that is why the trend has to be projected after that. Would Hinduism have been able to come up with a theological challenge before that? Yes. It probably would have. Why we came up with Swami Vivekananda? What was he? Uh, we ha uh, uh, came up with, uh, 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 I forget the name now, I'm sorry, uh, my name isn't very good. In Kerala, 
the uh, Erava uh, uh, gentleman. I forget his name now again. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, we came up with all these people. So it is removal of economic agency of your theological and the theological production of theology, the gatekeepers of your religion, which makes a transposition of the pattern of regeneration of Hinduism very, very difficult. Not impossible, but next to impossible. It is the economic imbalance and the continuing power of the Christian church that enables the same pattern to be enacted over and over and over again. So again, your statistical points have to take into factor in both sociological changes and economic changes. At that time, remember, Muslims demolished temples. They didn't seize them. Or when the kings went back, the land was given back to the temples. Right. So big difference. Otherwise, temple land, if they seized all the land, where did temples get so much land even right into the British era that all got bloody taken over by the government? So the economic wealth had not been taken away. It is the government of independent India that took it away. It is the government of Narendra Modi that refuses to give it back. Because they think of it as a cash cow who's uh, 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 who needs to be impregnated every uh, uh, year uh, twice a year if uh, humanly possible that needs its uh, uh, calves to be taken away without uh, them having their share of milk and for the calves to be sold off to an abattoir to be butchered for either leather or a veal then how would you look at uh, people like uh, yogi adityanath and uh, himant bishu sharma you're taking only the case of Ayesha. So, 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 you know, Modi. I, I generally admire Modi. Relax, 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 relax. Hey, you asked me a question, I'm giving the question. I didn't ask the whole question. I didn't You gave a long rhetorical pause. I thought your rhetorical pause was a full pause. Now, what will I do? I didn't know you played Vajpai. Vajpai was doing it. We didn't see it. I could I wish I could you given me a good suggestion I will keep that in mind <laughs> so where was I what was I talking about I forgot you disturbed me uh, you were talking uh, about uh, yeah sorry. so uh, what about people like Yogi Adityanath and Hemant Bishra Sharma you, you're talking only of uh, one YS Jagan and some small little uh, states. Uttar Pradesh is the heartland. If you look at uh, Uttar Pradesh from about, uh, I think, 1989-90 to about uh, 2017, that is uh, 2014, you can, you can put 2014 as the inflection point there. It never seen. I come from UP, by the way. It did not look as if uh, the state would be able to reverse its uh, Muslim capture. But it did. Similarly, Assam. Mm -hmm. Assam is probably uh, one of the most telling examples where the chief minister, the present chief minister, he campaigns on the basis of saying that I do not want a single Muslim vote. And he wins. Not just wins, he almost reaches two-thirds. Almost. No, though not quite. So, would you not consider them significant reversals, or that doesn't fit your framework? No, no, no. I do consider them significant reversals. My issue is with the sustainability. Himanta Biswal Sarma more than Yogi Adityanath. Now, let me talk about the three of them together: Modi, Yogi, uh, Himanta Da. Uh, Modi's and uh, Yogi, now, because of Modi's last seven years, I've now become completely disillusioned with Modi. Uh, and, you know, this is a lesson I should have learned from people like Ayatollah Khomeini and things like that, that you never place your trust in individuals, you place your trust in systems. 
because individuals can disappoint you, but institutional changes will never disappoint you. Okay, now, what has Modi done institutionally? Golgappa. What has Yogi done institutionally? Golgappa. So, he, will Yogi be good like Modi? Remember, Modi was the uh, uh, precursor. Yogi was selected. He didn't win the election. Yogi uh, uh, won the uh, electoral, uh, uh, the MLA vote to become chief minister. They didn't win it based on Yogi. They won it based on Modi's performance in the Lok Sabha elections of 2014. That was the trailblazer where the Hindu consolidation happened. So, uh, and it was a particularly, uh, 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 but anyway, let's leave aside the SP, the, the woes of the SP and the woes of the uh, BSP at that point of time. Leave it aside because that's not the point because your question is about Yogi and Himanta. Himanta Biswal Sarma, on the other hand, is the first person who is showing a clear-cut indication to enact institutional changes. For example, the laws about cow slaughter around temples and things like that. And obviously, because he's a congressman, he has a much more higher elevated level of understanding policy than anybody the, uh, uh, you know, the uh, BJP Parivar could ever produce. Uh, that you have to give it to the Congress. They do understand policy much better. Uh, in this particular case, I hope, uh, is it a reverse for Islamism in UP and uh, 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 Assam? Yes, huge. Assam more so, much more so, because it is being institutionalized, something that the previous chief minister did not have the guts to do, but the current chief minister does, and he's going about it very, very fast. The same way, for example, when the Congress took over the first thing in two states, the first thing it did was to sack all the committees set up by the BJP. When the DMK takes over in Tamil Nadu, the first thing it does is, is it appoints a pastor to revise the entire educational syllabus. Right. Very, very smart moves. Himanta seems to understand institutions. I don't know if he'll get consumed by this uh, Nobel Prize more that Vajpayee got affected with and clearly Narendra Modi is deep in the thrall of. Uh, Yogi, I don't think he will become uh, enthralled by the Nobel Prize or by what other people think of him. I hope not. But I've not seen the kind of institutional changes he is uh, like, you know, uh, Julian the Apostate was that one pagan emperor between the uh, 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 Nicene, uh, the Christian emperors. Uh, uh, Yogi might be that big reversal, but it is not a systematic reversal. Which is why I am still suspicious of Yogi, that when he comes to the center, will it be a Hindu renaissance of sorts? Maybe yes. Will it be institutional? Will it last? No, it will be like Raja Hemu. Or those other Hindu kings that, uh, you know, uh, who was the guy that killed the last, uh, was it the Khilji emperor or the Lodi emperor or the Mamluk emperor? He was a Pawar boy or something who killed the last emperor because he was a homosexual in a relationship with the last Sultan and he tried to take over. Uh, and then there was Raja Hemu uh, during uh, Akbar's time and all of that. Yeah, that would be Flashes, Lodi, shooting yeah. stars. So, so I don't know... Uh, Modi is definitely a shooting star. Let's be clear about this. A very long shooting star, maybe Haley's Comet that lasts for like 10, 12 days in your field of vision. But he's a shooting star because we have not seen institutional change. Yogi, uh, will he be much more militantly pro-Hindu than uh, Modi? I hope so, uh, going by his chief ministerial stint. But then, you know, that's what Modi was like when he was chief minister. Coming to the center completely changed. Uh, Himanta is the only one that shows promise of institutionalizing. Again, I don't know what happens when they come to power at the center. I think in order to control prime ministers, uh, there must be this thing that all meetings with foreign leaders must be behind closed doors. There must be no photo op ever with a foreign leader. And there must be, they must solidly reject any form of foreign prizes of any kind. Philip Kotler Award or uh, a management, a Philip Kotler Management Award or Nobel Prize. No Prime Minister must be allowed to accept anything. 
Did you ever hear? I think that Modi? would be a very good starting point. Did you ever hear Modi in Gujarat saying something like? Uh, I used to play his. I've heard something. his speeches on loop when he was Chief Minister of Gujarat, and now I um, listen to it with Karela juice because uh, between the Karela juice and his, spe his speeches, I find the Karela juice less bitter. Not to mention much more exciting as well. Oh, okay, no, I, I'm just asking. Even then, did you ever hear the kind of clarity that Yogi Adityanath has when he gets up at the assembly and he tells, "Kiamat ka din kabhi nahi aane wala hai." I'm sure with your understanding of Islam and 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 uh, Abrahamism, you understand the import and uh, significance of that statement. Yes. I can show you speeches that Julian the Apostate also made like that. Very profound speeches he <laughs> made to the Senate. Well, Abhijit, it doesn't already force. This is my one hour five minutes. Do not, do not trust people. Trust institutions, not people. So that point is well taken. Institution king. My my point is that uh, of course. Uh, uh, you do have a confirmation bias here because you need to confirm your theory. So every time you talk of um, future Constantine and uh, Theodosius and Honorius, you have a different kind of uh, take. But when it comes to uh, Yogi or Himant Bishwa Sharma or anyone else on the Sanatan side, you have your huge skepticism. Anyway. We are at one hour six minutes now, and we've got a lot of questions. So I think we need to do Islam sometime else. And today, we yes, got consumed by today. We do thirty minutes of we'll do thirty minutes of Q and A, and it will focus on Christianity. Yes. Yeah. So um, let's move to the Q and A. Uh, uh, viewers, please.